Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 8th of July 2017. Last week marked the 101st anniversary of the epic naval engagement at Jutland. Today's episode broadcasts a lecture that Professor Andrew Lambert from King's College London gave to the 1916 conference held by the Antrim and Down branch of the WFA on October 8th last year. His talk looked at the Battle of Jutland and its consequences. This talk was excellent and I thought it was well worth sharing with you. What I want to look at today is what happened at Jutland, but more importantly what Jutland means in terms of the outcome of the war and the nature of British strategic operations. For 100 years, the Battle of Jutland has been an abiding source of contention. A battle on May 31st, June 1st, 1916, the largest surface naval action in history, it is shrouded in tactical and command level controversy. Every aspect of the actual engagement, from the vexed question of who actually won it, uh, to the performance of senior admirals and the designs of the equipment being used, has been endlessly debated, generally with the production of heat, but not light. Um, And this has continued down to the present year, when a first-class book on the subject has been published, uh, not by me, but by my first-ever PhD student. Uh, Dr John Brooks' book on the Battle of Jutland is transformational. It really does deal with the battle uh, and all of it, and it pays far less attention uh, to the nonsense that happened afterwards than it does to the details of how the battle was fought and won. And unlike all other books on the subject, you can actually find out what HMS Caroline was doing in it um, because he gets down to the lower levels and is, own, is not totally fixated on the firing of large guns by heavy warships. The battle, therefore, because of this strange and convoluted history, entirely the product of its apparently inconclusive nature has been detached from the First World War. It, it sort of happens almost in a vacuum. It's, it's more connected with Trafalgar than it is with Jutland. And we tend to think about it as an isolated and, and rather odd Edwardian incident in what is a proto-modern conflict. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. But the ability of many to forget this, particularly in Britain, uh, led to some very powerful strategic debates between the wars, which I may get onto if we have enough time. But it certainly is important to remember that this battle has far more to do with winning the war uh, than it does with the egos of the admirals who fought it. Britain entered the First World War in August 1914 uh, for two very important reasons. First, because under international law, Britain, like all the other great powers, was obliged to defend the neutrality and territorial integrity of Belgium. Uh, Belgium was also obliged under international law to defend its own neutrality and territorial integrity. There was no let-out clause to the Belgians. They literally couldn't have made that concession the Germans asked them for. When Germany violated Belgian territory and refused to withdraw, Britain declared war. This was a really straightforward thing to do because Belgium only existed to keep the hegemonic powers of Europe out of the strategically important shipping bases of the Low Countries, particularly the Scheldt Estuary, Antwerp, Ostend and Zeebrugge. 
From these, it was an easy business to raid British shipping, and when those bases had been in the hands of other hegemonic powers, Spain and France, they had posed huge threats uh, to British trade. The most famous Ostender is a man called Jean Barre, who's a hero of the French Navy because he was serving them at the time, but he was a Fleming, and he operated in those waters to great effect. So keeping the bad guys out of Belgium was important to Britain. It wasn't about Belgium. It was about what Belgium managed to avoid. That is, in this case, German forces in that theatre. The failure of the British Army to secure Belgium in the autumn of 1914 was a geostrategic catastrophe of the first instance, which must have been avoided by any competent political leadership. The fact that it was not tells us that the political leadership was not competent. It was not the job of the Navy to defend Belgium, it was the job of the Army to prevent the bad guys getting hold of it. And the Army should have been deployed there in support of the Belgians. The second reason was to prevent Germany becoming a European hegemon, the standard threat against which Britain had waged war uh, even before it became Britain uh, back in the 16th century. Britain needed to prevent the creation of a hegemonic European bloc because that would undermine Britain's own ability to function as a global power. If Britain had to concentrate all its defence effort in the European theatre, it would not be able to protect its interests around the rest of the world, and it was on those interests that British prosperity and progress rested. So it was in Britain's self-interest to keep Europe peaceful, stable and balanced. Belgium was a very key part of that, but that strategic pattern was the thing that Britain had fought for before uh, and would indeed fight for again. In August 1914, before the war began, what British strategic planning there was for a grand war was entirely along the lines of previous conflicts. Britain would use limited maritime warfare with very limited mobilisation military manpower with a large degree of economic warfare in which it would close down the overseas part of the war, driving the Germans off the ocean out of their overseas bases and essentially bringing the rest of the world into the fight alongside Britain and its allies in the European theatre, a final decisive showdown. Uh, the British fully anticipated this might take a long time. The last Great War had effectively taken 22 years, so nobody was under illusions uh, apart from the army, that it would be over by Christmas. Uh, only European armies thought they could win a decisive battle in six months. Uh, the leading British strategist was well aware of how Britain fought wars, and he was heavily involved in the pre-war and early war planning of that war. Sadly, only the Navy listened. This strategy would secure British trade, including the essential food and raw materials imports upon which the British Isles relied for their abject and absolute survival. As Sir John Fisher pointed out in 1904, it was not invasion Britain had to fear, it was starvation. If Britain lost command of the sea, there would be no need to invade it. It could be starved out in about six weeks. Uh, today it would be about six days. Um, if you want a lesson on survival cannibalism, that's another lecture, but I can offer you that one as well. British strategy, as ever, would be based on a grand fleet, which would blockade the main German, in this case German, enemy fleet, which could challenge British command of the sea, while other aspects of the fleet would be deployed globally to control the use of the sea and to protect Britain's vital trade lines. British shipping at 20 million tonnes 
dwarfed that of all other powers put together. Britain had more ships than the next five powers on the list combined. Britain also had access to a lot of other people's ships because all global shipping services were run out of London. And many of the countries that had significant shipping fleets depended on Britain as the main customer for their shipping services. Uh, So fleets like the Norwegian fleet essentially ran within the British orbit. And many of those companies were capitalised in Britain too, so they were beneficially owned here. These ships would haul the men, supplies and raw materials needed to wage the war in Europe. British plans had always been that these men, materials and supplies would not be British. The British way of war was to get everybody else to do the nasty, messy bit at the front end and to stay at home in Belfast making 20 million shells for them to fire, not for us to fire. Uh, This was a much more intelligent way of making war uh, and it had rather less catastrophic impacts socially. The First World War relied on Chilean nitrates because that's what you put inside those shells to make them explode. Without access to Chilean nitrates, we would have been in real trouble blowing up Germans. Uh, Argentine beef is what ends up tins. Uh, The Germans even like Argentine beef, but they can't get their hands on any beef because they have no access to the world market. Uh, And, of course, British troops use Australian and Canadian grain to make their bread, or indeed... That's where the grain came from that fed them, if it didn't come from the United States. And again, these supplies were not accessible to the Germans, and this really does matter. Command of the sea was secured by the Grand Fleet, which is operating right up here, out of Scapa Flow, closing down the Scotland-Norway gap. Second fleet in the Channel, closing off the Straits of Dover and covering the movement of military shipping, (coughs) carrying as much of the army as anybody wants to go into France. And a critical theatre here, Western approaches, all of the world's shipping comes funnelling in here, and keeping that secure is vitally important, and this will become more problematic later in the war. Germany entered the war isolated. On day one, the post office fished up all of Germany's international telegraph cables in the channel, cut them and hauled them ashore, and the British used them for the rest of the war of their own. This forced the Germans to use the Danish telegraph, which the GPO had already tapped, hence the famous Zimmermann telegram, which the Germans told the Mexicans some rather silly things, and the British then waited until they wanted the Americans to know them. Germany's war, of course, was about mobilising a very large amount of its adult male manpower as infantry and waging war with the search for a decisive campaign in the West, followed by a rapid campaign in the East, because otherwise they would run out of food. Most German military reservists and conscripts were agricultural labourers. German officers didn't like working with industrial workmen who tended to be educated and politicised. They preferred telling peasant soldiers what to do. So German food production in 1915 was going to go through the floor. Uh, This was very much an ancient Greek war. The harvest is in, now let's get the troops out, win the war and be back in time to plant. Or if not, we'll have overrun somewhere else and we'll steal their food instead. The Germans avoided planning for a long war. Britain had no plan for anything other than a long war, which is why the British were so unwilling to go to war. Uh, This was going to be long and unpleasant, however we fought it. Um, And the only question was how long and how unpleasant. Blockade denied Germany access to foreign food, fuel and industrial production. It meant the Germans fought the whole of the First World War without a single decent cup of coffee. 
Some of you may not find that difficult. I personally would find that horrific. Um, I can't function for more than about five hours without at least a pint of the stuff. So the Germans would cut off from all tropical produce, and they had to invent things like decaffeinated coffee made out of roasted hazelnuts. It's not convincing. The blockade was conducted by the 10th Cruiser Squadron, which actually operates up here behind the Grand Fleet, uh, initially a few old warships, but latterly armed merchant cruisers, good standard, high endurance, highly seaworthy merchant ships with reserve naval crews, a few naval officers on board, and Newfoundland boat crews. Um, why Newfoundlanders were mobilised into the army, I do not know, because they're the world's best boatmen and should have been employed at sea. Uh, nobody in Newfoundland makes a living on the land. Th these are aquatic people. Britain won the war to command the sea before the war even began. Uh, it's quite easy. <coughs> you just build more ships. Uh, there'd been an arms race, which the British had used to defeat the Germans, and in 1912 the Germans admitted they'd lost. These are the figures that absolutely matter. 28 dreadnought battleships, 16 dreadnought battleships. The Germans are not going to win this battle. Uh, they didn't intend to fight it, and they certainly couldn't win it. Uh, nine battlecruisers, five battlecruisers. The British had won the war at sea by 1914. They were already four to three ahead of the Germans when the war began. Uh, they were three to two ahead of the Germans by the time of Jutland. The balance was going up. Britain was getting stronger and stronger. The Germans had dropped their building in 1912, and they didn't push on with building during the war. They completed three capital ships after the outbreak of the war. Everything else uh, was stopped. In fact, Germany's best naval chance was on day one, a surprise attack on the British fleet in Scapaflow would have been their best opportunity. They'd probably have lost, but they would have done better than at any other stage in the war. Furthermore, the one thing that isn't important in the First World War is this bit, the German coast on the North Sea. There is nowhere more strategically useless in the whole of the First World War than the Heligoland Bight. There is nothing in there worth doing. Uh, Hamburg, Bremen, all the great ports, you can cut them off here and here. You don't need to go in there. The bit that does matter is through here, but we'll come to that. The Kaiser's High Seas Fleet, costly, provocative, the instrument that really made sure the British were on the other side when the war broke out, was actually strategically useless and had no role in German initial operations. The Navy said to the German army, what do we do when the war breaks out? And the army said, get your coal trains out of the way of the troop trains. That's it. Yeah. They didn't even send a squadron to sea for political propaganda purposes. The army was going to win this war, and rather as in 1870, they wouldn't allow the Navy into the victory parade. Yeah. Tirpitz was humiliated as a very junior officer. He wasn't allowed to go on the victory parade because he was Navy. And the Navy had done nothing to win the Franco-Prussian War. The army had got it set up. Sadly, our, Navy, our army had got the same idea. Brought up on the myth that Trafalgar had decided the Napoleonic Wars, the British public expected the Royal Navy would set off, find the Germans, sink them, and everything would go pretty much according to plan. This was never going to happen. Uh, Trafalgar didn't settle the Napoleonic Wars. Britain already had control of the World Ocean and did not need to sink the High Seas Fleet somewhere in Willemshaven Harbour, uh, unless they came out and wished to fight, in which case they would have been <coughs> indulged. What we needed to do was to get the Germans out of Belgium uh, and to get 
British power into the Baltic to complete the economic blockade that would destroy Germany's war effort. These were important operations, but they were maritime, that is, amphibious combined operations, not naval operations. The Navy alone could not win this war, but a strategy of maritime combined operations could, and it was the breakdown of that combination that gravely weakened British war effort and meant that the Navy and the Army were fighting essentially separate wars by the beginning of 1916. And this was a failure of geostrategic leadership by the War Cabinet. The contrast to be made with that of, for example, the Earl of Chatham in the Seven Years' War is really quite striking. Chatham conceives of the war and he draws together the two strategic instruments to wage it effectively. Uh, in 1914, Mr Asquith doesn't know anything about war and doesn't want to know anything about war, and he leaves it to people who think they know something. There are other problems in 1914. Those dreadnought battleships and indeed the submarines that aren't there have never been used in battle. These are new instruments. The dreadnought battleship itself is an instrument of such enormous complexity that although the Titanic might have been the biggest ship built in the world, uh, the latest dreadnought was by far the most complex technological instrument on the planet. It was the acme of what it meant to be a great power, to be able to build a first-class dreadnought battleship entirely within your own political structure said that you were a great power. Very few countries could do this. This really was the mark of a great power. Britain, Germany, the United States, that's it. All the others were struggling and were depending on getting technical handouts from other people. These things had a political significance far beyond that of a 74-gun ship of the line in Nelson's Navy. Losing one was an event of national and indeed international consequence. It was not something to be essayed lightly. We were not going to risk these things because the mere symbolism of losing one <coughs> could be significant. They tended to carry powerful names, and the resonance of those names meant that if you lost it, there was some consequence to that. Uh, having the flagship uh, named after Frederick the Great meant if the Germans lost it, it would suggest something about their prowess in war. Why on earth our flagship was named after an army officer, I have no idea, but that's just an accident of history. The previous flagship was Neptune, and the next one would have been Royal Sovereign, uh, which are proper naval names. So ships mattered, but they mattered more as political instruments, and with the exception of the British, the naval powers of the First World War were more concerned to keep their prestigious capital ships than they were to use them, and they failed to achieve strategic effect because they were more worried about the diplomatic bargaining that would follow as a result, we all know what happened to the German high seas fleet. They sank it for themselves. We didn't have to do even that. For two years, the fleets watched and waited, the Germans more fearful of losing control of the Baltic than ambitious to risk battle, while the British, as First Sea Lord Admiral Sir John Fisher observed, had everything they needed and they had no need to head south to try and seek out a climactic showdown with the Germans. The Germans couldn't come and pick a fight with the British at Scava Flow because their destroyers were so short-legged they couldn't get there and back again. So the British base meant that the Germans couldn't attack them without coming without a large part of their force. Those destroyers were a major battle instrument with their torpedo uh, fire. Stasis served the British. It supported the blockade. Germany's war effort was being degraded by increments and slowly but surely the blockade was being increased in efficiency every time the Germans broke international law and committed a war crime. Uh, we've mentioned the Lusitania, that's a war crime. Uh, sinking any merchant ship without warning by submarine is a war crime. 
sinking a merchant ship by any means without making provision for the safety of crew and passengers is a war crime. And these were tried after the war in Germany, and the Germans let their own U-boat skippers off. Next time, we didn't do it that way. We tried them, and some of them got shot. So never be surprised that U-boat warfare took the British by surprise. It was fundamentally illegal. And everybody in the world thought it wouldn't be done, apart from Fisher, who was well aware that this would indeed happen, and said so about 1910. Early in 1915, British and German battle cruisers clashed on the Dogger Bank. Uh, the Germans lost one of their heavy ships. Uh, the British managed to make a bit of a botch of finishing the battle off, and the Germans got away. But it just reinforced that sense that the British were in charge, and they could do much as they pleased. Unfortunately, Britain's limited maritime global war strategy was sacrificed initially to the wishes of the general staff and increasingly to the ambitions of the French to tie Britain's resources into a continental war in which there would be some kind of decision reached in a short period of time. One could understand French anxiety. It was their country, after all, the Germans were sitting in. But it really wasn't Britain's job to get the Germans out of France. The Gallipoli campaign that great what-if of the First World War uh, was a classic British operation, maritime, amphibious, combined, and it failed not for want of effort but for want of the political courage uh, on the eve of success uh, to back what was being done, and ultimately because the French threatened to leave the Entente if the British did not shift their forces to Salonika. It's quite clear that Gallipoli was killed by the French in their own interests. Uh, consequently, as Falkenhayn said, uh, this really was a catastrophic uh, misapplication of resources. Those French divisions that went to Salonika, if they'd gone to the Asiatic shore of Gallipoli, the campaign would have been over in a matter of weeks. Indeed, by the end of 1915, it was quite clear the British were winning the Gallipoli campaign. But that's another story. By early 1916, therefore, we left with two separate wars, a land war and a naval war. And then one of them cannot be decisive because the numbers are simply too great. The other, because you can't win a great war simply at sea. But the navies know they have to do something. And the German navy is acutely aware of the fact that it's sitting around doing nothing while the army is bleeding to death. Admiral Sir John Jellicoe, Commander-in-Chief Grand Fleet for the first half of the war, a man with a brain like a slide rule who could conceive of the motions of 150 ships in a 50-square-mile radius and organise them in his head to plan how he was going to deploy them against an enemy who was advancing towards him on bearings and at speeds he could not yet predict. Remarkable intellect. Remarkable intellect. And a man greatly loved by all who knew him. I don't need to tell you much about Reinhard here. You can make your own mind up. This is a photograph uh, in the front of speech of his memoirs. Uh, he's telling you something by sticking his chin out, I'm sure. Scheer was new on the job. He'd replaced the previous admiral, who'd um, died of something unpleasant, and the one before that had been sacked for being incompetent. Uh, and he decided that they had to go out, find the British, and sink some of their ships. So we'll pick off a piece of the British Grand Fleet and sink it and gradually whittle them down. It's a bit Western Front. Let's bite and hold on the British fleet. And he thought that the British battlecruiser force uh, was commanded by an impetuous officer, and he could probably lure them into a trap and sink them. That was his... That was a great plan. Jellicoe had a different plan. From the beginning of the war, Admiral Fisher, who'd been forced to resign to stop Churchill doing stupid things in the Dardanelles, had planned to threaten to enter the Baltic, and by threatening to enter the Baltic, to lure the Germans into invading Denmark. 
Unfortunately, he needed the British Expeditionary Force on hand to land on the island of Zeeland to hold that part of Denmark and hold the Baltic open. Jellicoe's version, therefore, in May 1930, 1916, was that he would sortie a, a major force down into the approaches to Copenhagen to see what the Germans were about. But without the troops to back it up, this was actually quite a dangerous approach. He was on the eve of that sortie when Scheer himself came out, and the British were now responding to the Germans rather than uh, driving their own plan home. Scheer's plan was simple. He would send a force across to the east coast of England, bombard some powerful strategic base like Scarborough and then when the British responded and chased him home he would try and ambush part of their fleet. Uh, on the day it turned out the weather was appalling, low thick clouds so his vital strategic reconnaissance asset the Zeppelin was grounded. So he shifted focus to sending a force up onto the Norwegian coast looking for British Scandinavian convoys and he would use though an attack on those as his lure. As we all know, the British were reading German radio signals, so we knew they were coming out, and the British actually sailed before the Germans. So the British anticipate the German uh, sailing, and they come out in full force. Scheer doesn't know this. Here's the Grand Fleet at sea. Uh, that's nine Duke-class battleship. Uh, flagship is the lead ship of that class, Jellicoe's flagship. And this is where the battle is going to be fought off the Jutland Peninsula. It's very close to Copenhagen, the Sound, and this one, the Great Belt, which is the main route into the Baltic. And just down here is Kiel, German Baltic naval base. So we're in Germany's backyard here. We're just north of the German frontier. Both fleets were led by detached <coughs> battlecruiser formations. Um, Battlecruiser is a slightly different kind of capital ship. It's roughly the same size as a battleship. It has slightly less guns by number, it has a much higher speed, and it has less armoured protection. It's designed for high-speed operations. Its main function is to crush the enemy's scouting forces and to deliver the enemy up to the main battle fleet. It could be seen as the cavalry screen of the fleet. Uh, to use a military analogy. And the British battlecruisers were commanded by the son and brother of a Hussar, of Hussar officers, uh, which may indeed be emblematic. And there is David Beatty, Leicestershire gent. Uh, most of his brothers were on the Western Front in the cavalry. And here's Franz von Hipper, who was rather better at fighting at sea. Being a Bavarian, he knew all about the ocean. Um, uh, Hepper's performance in the battle is, is exceptional. He, it really was a very, very good performance right the way through the day. He did pretty much everything he could uh, under the circumstances and was in the thick of the fighting from first to last. Uh, his ships didn't suffer the kind of problems Beatty's did. Brittle battlecruiser fleet and the German first scouting group met. They'd already met once, and Beatty thought this was unfinished business. On the day of battle, Beatty had six battlecruisers to Hippus five. He also had four Queen Elizabeth-class fast battleships, which were infinitely more powerful and far better protected than any of his own capital ships. But he didn't want them to take the glory of winning the engagement. So when he spotted Hipper, he made a rapid manoeuvre, flew a few flag signals, and headed off after the enemy, leaving the commander of the 5th Battle Squadron, Hugh Evan Thomas, completely unaware of what he was meant to do because he was a Grand Fleet officer used to being given instructions by signal rather than simply following the leader. Beatty led from the front and expected everybody to conform to his movements, 
Evan Thomas was waiting for orders. He eventually worked out what was going on and he got back into formation quickly, but not quickly enough. That is Beatty's flagship, HMS Lion, a ship dominated by funnels. Twin 13 5-inch mountings, 1, 2, 3, and 4. Uh, the third one will be important. Capable of about 28 knots, a bit over 30 miles an hour. 9-inch armour on the main belt. Quite an impressive ship, but not as perfect as it might have been. When the battle opened, it rapidly became clear that German gunnery, under the conditions prevailing, was rather better than British. The Germans had the advantage of the light, which was silhouetting the British as a target on the western horizon, uh, and they were behind a screen of murk, which made it difficult for rangefinding. But in truth, Beatty's ships did not take many ranges, and they hadn't got their fire control solutions worked out. So when the Germans opened fire at 14,000 yards, the British thought they were at 17,000 yards and opened fire accordingly. In dreadnought gunnery, the key is to find the enemy target, start hitting it, and then surge into rapid uh, independent salvos for as long as you have a chance of hitting, and then to find the target again and surge more fire onto it. It's not the deliberate firing of a land engagement. So if you haven't found the target, you're in real trouble if the enemy's found you. Uh, so you do get, tend to get asymmetric results. The first ship to sink was HMS Indefatigable, the last of Beatty's battle cruisers at the back end of the line. She was overwhelmed by fire from the last of the German battle cruisers, von der Tann. Uh, she blew up at the stern in X turret, stern fell off, and the rest of the ship carried on going for a little while, and then it rolled over and sank and blew up. Uh, there was nobody inside the ship alive after the first magazine explosion. Uh, 150 tons of cordite going off in a strong metal box produces a pressure wave of 1,200 psi, which will turn anything human into jelly. Uh, so the only survivors stepped out of the fire control top. Everybody inside the ship, and that's everybody, was killed. At action stations, there's nobody outside the ship. The only people who are not going to be killed are on the spotting top. The cause of this accident, and it was an accident, wasn't weak protection. It was that the, fire, that the magazine system, which had safety interlocks between the working chamber of the guns behind in the turret and the, the ammunition magazine at the very bottom of the ship, had had the airtight and pressure-tight interlocks removed to increase the rate of fire. In the interest of shooting more rapidly, to compensate for poor accuracy, they'd actually opened up what should have been a very safe system. As a result, a hit on the turret led to an explosion and a trail of fire then proceeded down into the igniting the charges that were waiting in the hoists below the turret, uh, leading to the catastrophic explosion. Shortly afterwards, in the run to the south, HMS Queen Mary, and here we can see the Germans being very proud of their handiwork, uh, exploded in exactly the same fashion. The amidship's turret, which I showed you online, the third turret between the funnels, blew up, broke the ship's back, the bow of the ship rolled over, blew up and sank, and the stern carried on steaming and is now ahead of the bow on the bottom of the North Sea. Again, the only survivors stepped out of external positions on the ship, about four men. So when these ships went down, over a thousand men were killed before they even the explosion had died down. Uh, that's Lion uh, with some German <coughs> shell splashes ahead of her. Uh, that's another version of the same photograph. 
Um, here, Warspite and Malaya, two of the 5th Battle Squadron, they now get into the action, and their far superior gunnery, they start to hit the target very quickly, rapidly forces Hitler's ships to take <coughs> evasive maneuvers, and German gunnery drops away at this point, and the battlecruiser fleet is saved by 5th Battle Squadron. Uh, exemplary performance by some very fine ships with very superior gunnery uh, control systems and very superior officers manning them. Battlecruiser fleet was a remarkably lackadaisical force. Uh, they were known as Cavalier, um, partly because Beatty was such a fine horseman, uh, but also because of their methods. Uh, these are ships of such quality that they served right through the Second World War as well. Run to the south, British in blue, Germans in red, and now Scheer is coming up from the south to complete the ambush. Hipper has brought Beatty down towards Scheer's advancing high seas fleet. Uh, it now should be curtains for Beatty. He's been lured into a trap through his own impetuosity. He's now going to pay the ultimate price. But of course he isn't. He's got six knots on the Germans. All he has to do is reverse course. And as long as nothing goes wrong with his machinery, he's going to get out of that relatively easily. <coughs> Fifth Battle Squadron only has about three knots on the Germans, so they need to change course pretty quickly. Beatty forgets to tell them he's seen the Germans until a bit too late, and he doesn't order them to reverse course until even later. So the Fifth Battle Squadron ends up engaging the leading echelons of Shear's High Seas Fleet. It's only at this point that Jellicoe knows that Shear is at sea. The Admiralty's told him he's still in Wilhelmshaven. So Jellicoe has actually pushed back on his speed to save coal, and he's delayed the rendezvous with BT because there's no chance of a main fleet action. This is what happens in every sortie. You think the Germans are coming, they don't come, you slow down, you go back to scab flow, and then you spend two days refueling, which is miserable, breaking, filthy work. So in the interest of crew comfort, Jellicoe slacked off speed. And stoking for full speed anyway is, is demanding. You probably get about six hours full speed out of your stoke hold before people <coughs> start collapsing and you run out of human resources. And getting the coal from the far ends of the ship to keep the furnaces burning uh, becomes increasingly difficult. So maintaining speed is a problem. The Germans have another problem. They have rubbish coal. The only good coal in the world for these kinds of ships come from South Wales. And funnily enough, we haven't sold them any recently. No German ship in the First World War made full speed on coal. None. Which, which might have been a serious advantage. So now Jellicoe knows the Germans are coming, but Beatty, classically lackadaisical, says, I've seen the Germans and they're coming your way, sort of. Um, I'm not sure how fast or on what bearing or roughly anything. So all Jellicoe knows is the Germans are coming, he doesn't know precisely where, he doesn't know when to expect them, and Beatty consistently fails to tell him what's going on. <coughs> a shockingly poor performance. Uh, first cruiser squadron, uh, William Goodenough, gives better reports, so Jellicoe has some information, but he has to get from a six-column cruising formation into a single line ahead to maximise his broadside gunfire. He wants to get between the enemy and their base uh, to catch them by literally, as they say, crossing his T. The Germans are coming bow first. He wants to get right across the top so he can give them all of his firepower as they've got very little forward firepower, a crushing manoeuvre. To his enormous credit, he actually <coughs> achieves this, despite having very little information. This is Lyon's Q turret, and this is the proof of the point I was making earlier. This is the same hit that destroyed the Queen Mary. Right between the two gun barrels, 
a German 11 or 12 inch round has gone in. You can actually see the fracture in the mounting. Uh, the turret has then exploded, the crew have all been killed, and a 200 ton piece of armour has been thrown overboard like the top of a bean can. But the explosion has not travelled down to the magazine because the safety interlocks are in place. And Lyon continued to fight throughout the battle, taking 18 heavy calibre hits. Uh, and this was the only significant damage she suffered. Uh, Queen Mary would have survived as well. The same hit on Queen Mary, which was a sister ship, would have had the same effect if the safety interlocks had been in place. Jellico gets his six columns into a line of, of battle just as Shear comes into sight. Critical thing about Jutland, low visibility. These ships are capable of firing to the horizon, about 20,000, 25,000 yards. Uh, at Jutland, 12,000 maximum visibility. There's an opening exchange of fire between Jellicoe's fleet and the leading elements of Shear's fleet, but only half of the British fleet has a clear target. Some British ships are not able to fire. They cannot see the enemy. They literally have nothing to shoot at because the visibility is so poor. Unfortunately for Shear's leading ships, they run straight into Jellicoe's flagship, the Iron Duke, which is the best trained gunnery platform in the Navy, and they take a considerable beating. In the margins of all of this, Shear uh, has to make a big decision. Hipper's force is by now badly degraded by cumulative damage. His flagship, the Lutzhoff, has been hit over and over again, and in an action uh, which happens just as Jellicoe is forming up, Third battlecruiser squadron, which was attached to the Grand Fleet, put some rounds into Lutzoff, which effectively sinks her. And shortly afterwards, the flagship of Third Battle Squadron, which was invincible, again blows up and sinks, having been hit by heavy calibre rounds on her midship's turret. Again, the only survivors are in the upper control tower. Jellicoe has ensured that Britain is not going to lose the First World War uh, by driving off sheer. Scheer makes um, an astonishing manoeuvre which tells us a lot about what the Germans thought the war at sea would look like. As soon as he realises he's fighting the whole of the Grand Fleet, which he had no intention of doing, he orders an emergency battle turnaway. There's a German technical word for that, but I won't trouble you by attempting to pronounce it. This manoeuvre requires the German battle fleet, 20-odd ships strong, to reverse course in series from the rear. So as the rear ship puts her helm over, the ship ahead watches until the bow starts to swing over out of line and then follows that manoeuvre. So it's a ripple turn from the rear. Now, this requires wonderful seamanship, a tremendous amount of discipline and a great deal of courage under fire, particularly by the guys in the leading ship, because they're going to just have to carry on their course, getting plastered until everybody else has finished the manoeuvre. Uh, so there's a great deal of courage on, on display here and some very fine seamanship, which is the point at which I need to remind you that at Trafalgar, Nelson was fighting brave imbeciles. Uh, at Jutland, Jellicoe is not fighting brave imbeciles. These are, these are unit for unit, officer and man for officer and man, as good as the British have to offer. Jellicoe's advantage is he's got a bigger fleet. And he did not take the Germans for granted, as Nelson definitely did at Trafalgar uh, with the French. As a consequence of this manoeuvre, Scheer is heading out into the North Sea. Jellicoe has achieved the strategic effect of getting between the enemy and his base. If Scheer wants to go home, he's going to have to fight his way through a larger and more powerful fleet. 
This is the holy grail of, of naval operational art. In a single manoeuvre, he, he has achieved everything he needs. An hour later, Shear reverses course and again blunders into the British and performs a second emergency battle turnaway, again without a single accident in seamanship. So not, this wasn't a fluke performance. The Germans really were very good at turning away from a battle. And the fact they drilled it over and over again tells you a great deal. This time, uh, Scheer threw in, that's this phase here, threw in all of his assets, the battle cruisers, which were already badly degraded. He basically ordered them to go and ram Jellicoe's fleet, and he threw all of his destroyers in at this point as well in a mass torpedo <coughs> attack. As a result, Jellicoe turned away from the torpedo attack, which was standard doctrine, and outran the torpedo salvo before reversing course. He therefore lost contact with Scheer, and Scheer proceeded back out into the North Sea, once again in that bad position where he'd placed himself. So he'd now run away from a fight twice and was still in a very difficult situation. During the night, Jellicoe had no intention of fighting. He formed back into a tight formation and held station heading south towards a known gap in the German minefield through which the Germans might return home in the morning. There was another gap over this way on the Horns Reef off the coast of Denmark. Jellicoe had no intention of going there because it was an obvious ambush. But during the night, Scheer was able to break his way through the rear of Jellicoe's fleet, through the flotillas, destroy flotillas, and some of the cruiser formations, without Jellicoe ever having a clear picture of what was going on. As a consequence, Scheer arrived at the Horns Reef around dawn. He had a zeppelin head overhead because the climactic conditions had improved and by the afternoon of June the 1st many of his ships had arrived at Wilhelmshaven uh, there's HMS Tiger shortly after battle uh, Tiger took 18 heavy caliber hits battle cruiser and survived the battle intact still perfectly functional one heavy gun disabled by a direct hit um, the idea that battle cruisers were in some way uh, incapable of, of combat operations is not borne out by the evidence German battleship, Westfalen, of the same class as the Oldenburg, which hit a mine uh, as they were passing the Horns Reef. Jellicoe had laid a minefield there to catch the Germans. He'd also put a submarine ambush there. But he told the submarines the Germans would be coming on the 2nd, so the submarines were waiting on the bottom for June the 2nd. They didn't come up and have a look. This is the German battlecruiser Zeidlitz, which was the worst damage of all the capital ships in at the Battle of Jutland, uh, 27 heavy calibre hits. Um, a turret is empty because they actually had to take the guns and the turret roof off to lift the bow to get her into harbour. She was so low in the water. When she got to Willemshaven, the water was up against the breakwater just ahead of a turret. Uh, she was technically already about to sink when she arrived at port. They got some pumps on board and basically kept the water from getting any worse. This turret was knocked out early in the battle. There's a, there's a shell strike there. The shell went in and exploded and knocked the turret out. By the end of the battle, she had one heavy gun still firing. And was all, the propellers were almost out of the water. All of this stuff here is the anti-torpedo netting, which was smashed to pieces during the battle. And at one stage, she had to stop and cut some of it away before it fouled the propellers. She was not the only German capital ship in a truly shattered condition. She would not be ready for operations until the end of the year. Several other German ships were in the same position. 
that no British capital ship took more than two weeks to repair of those that had survived. The Kaiser came up to Wilhelmshaven the next day and, and cracked open the champagne and celebrated the destruction of the myth of Trafalgar, but Scheer said we must never do this again, uh, and they never did. The Germans had learned a very powerful lesson. They couldn't compete with the, the Grand Fleet. Command of the sea was in British hands before, during, and after the engagement. Uh, this is what naval casualties look like. Lots of them suffered from flash injuries. This is why modern Royal Navy personnel wear anti-flash equipment when going into action. As you can see, that these men have suffered particular kinds of injury associated with naval warfare. The Germans quickly got their propaganda machine into operation and launched an offensive, claiming that they indeed had won the battle. So here's a little German Matrosen, and here's a Royal Navy rating. There's so many more, and so many more of ours got killed. Uh, we had more broadsides than they did, but they sank more ships than we did. You wouldn't gather from this that the biggest ship sunk at Jutland was the Lutzhoff. Um, and before this, the Germans who claimed other ships on the British side had been sunk as well. Casualties, 6,000 to 2,000. Germans sank six large British ships. British sank two large German ships. But casualties are not an indication of victory, otherwise Napoleon would have lost every battle he ever fought. Uh, holding the ground and achieving your strategic objective is the key. And the British had done that in spades. The Germans had fled the field three times and were not coming back to challenge the surface command of the sea ever again. Now, there was never going to be a decisive battle at Jutland because there was nothing to force the Germans to fight. Had Jellicoe turned up on the day with an amphibious transport fleet behind him with 50,000 troops to occupy Denmark, the Germans would have stood and fought rather longer, and the war might have changed its direction at that point. But there was no way that purely naval operations could draw out and destroy the German fleet, unless the Germans were complete imbeciles. Remember, Villeneuve was not heading to invade England in October 1805. He was taking an army to invade Sicily. That's why he came out. He had no other business to come out. The orders were to take the troops to Sicily, where the British had just landed their own expeditionary force. That little expeditionary force turned the entire grand strategy of the Napoleonic conflict. Napoleon's response to it sacrificed his fleet. Had the British done something that would draw the German fleet out along the same lines, a different Battle of Jutland may well have occurred. But there was no expeditionary force to do that with. Jellicoe, of course, could have lost the war in an afternoon, as Churchill famously quipped, but he sure as hell couldn't win it. Sinking the entire high seas fleet would not have made much difference. Britain was blockading Germany, Germany was suffering the consequences of that, and its only strike against Britain at sea throughout this period was through commerce warfare, largely conducted by <coughs> submarines. So sinking the high seas fleet would have achieved relatively little unless Britain had military force to exploit that victory with so Jellicoe had done very well, but he couldn't have done much better. The German propaganda offensive, we won the battle, uh, the British lost, was soon exploded by the inaction of the German fleet, and Churchill was called in to write a different version of the Admiralty's communique to make it sound a little better. The problem was the contrast between anything that could be written in 1916 and Lord Collingwood's deathless, overwhelmingly powerful Trafalgar Dispatch, a document which demonstrates that Newcastle Grammar School was a fine school of English literature uh, and that Lord Collingwood himself understood the purpose of battle, uh, 
it, it's impossible to read the two documents without realizing there'd been a serious loss of power in the intellect of our senior naval men. Uh, the Americans, who were still neutral, realized quite quickly what had happened, and one newspaper man quipped that the, ja- that the prisoner had assaulted his jailer, but he was back in jail again. British command of the sea had not been contested. Uh, Jellico was unwilling to pursue the Germans into dangerous waters because he knew the Germans relied on small forces, torpedo boats, uh, submarines, to try and draw down on his capital ship's strength. Uh, A final sortie by Scheer in August 1916 uh, was accompanied by Zeppelins, and the Zeppelins spotted a cruiser squadron operating out of Harwich, reported it as a battle squadron, and Scheer ran away as quickly as possible. Um, That was the last time the high seas fleet came out in full strength intent on doing anything much. At that point, the Germans decided they would go for unrestricted submarine warfare. It was just a question of time. This was illegal, and they knew that by doing so, they would bring the Americans into the war. They'd given up on that propaganda offensive because German propaganda was unbelievably banal, and it didn't even persuade American voters. And we know how easily they're persuaded by banal things these days. (laughs) But we, we must wait on... Um, unlike President Obama, I wouldn't believe in, uh, wouldn't dream of telling the Americans how to vote in their own election. Uh, what, the Amer- what the Germans were planning to do was, uh, as I said earlier, illegal. It was a war crime. And of course, the U-boats didn't achieve the strategic effect that was being sought. Oh, we came near, near to losing the war. No, we didn't. Uh, we came near to having to change our strategy. Um, but we didn't. Um, at one point, Jellico, who was now First Sea Lord, said, you know that Salonica thing, if we stopped doing that, we could release so much shipping that we wouldn't have to worry about the U-boats. Did we do that? No, because the French were committed to Salonica. Instead, we did what we always do when shipping is threatened. We instituted a serious convoy system, uh, combining escorted shipping with patrols and increasingly with the use of air assets. In the whole of the First World War, only two ships were sunk in a convoy under air escort. And that air escort was often a non-rigid airship. Perfect for stooging around over the top of a convoy. The German submariners were incredibly nervous of being spotted from the air. Even if the aeroplane itself had no weapons on board, it could report back to surface forces, and they were very, very nervous of that. Furthermore... The threat to Britain's use of the sea was solved in the same way it's always solved. The predators were destroyed, and the crews of the predating vessels were either locked up or, being in submarines, very often killed. Uh, The attrition rate on submarines by the end of the First World War was strikingly high, made some of those figures on the Western Front look almost bearable. Um, Nearly 40% of all U-boat personnel in the First World War were killed. And in the Second World War, it's 75%. It's not business to be in if you have a wish to live long and prosper. Grand Fleet guarantees command of the sea. Britain is able to mobilise an anti-submarine effort, and which is basically about organising global shipping. The British take control of the entire global shipping system in 1917 and use that and improved movement of goods within uh, inside Britain uh, to maintain the war effort. In October 1918, uh, Admiral Scheer, who's now in charge of the whole German Navy, plans what could only be described as a Wagnerian death ride in which the high seas fleet will steam into the Thames estuary and get sunk by the Grand Fleet. 
This will preserve the honour of the German officer corps. Uh, it will ensure that after the war Germany will build another navy and have some heroic names to put on it. Uh, and that there will be jobs for admirals. It won't do much for the lives of the Matlows who man the ship. Uh, they heard about this and refused to stoke the boilers or raise anchor. Uh, this mutiny then exploded into the downfall of the Hohenzollern Empire. Uh, the men went ashore at Kiel and Wilhelmshaven. They pulled up the communist flag over the town halls, got on the express train to Berlin and effectively brought down the government. It was on that day that the Kaiser fled into exile. So the war was ended by the instrument that had failed to achieve any strategic value <coughs> during it. So Jutland lives on. Jutland lives on in many different ways. But those questions persist. And I want to end with a big one and in many ways a small one. The small one, which is there, I will come to. The comparison with Trafalgar was exploded in 1921 by Sir Julian Corbett, the official historian of British strategy in the First World War and indeed the writer of pre-war strategic doctrine. And I quote, What material advantage did Trafalgar give that Jutland did not give? It's a question that, in the present state of our knowledge, I will not venture to answer. 1921, Corbett is giving a lecture in, in central London to an audience comprising historians, many of them historians of the war, and the entire naval staff. And he's got to get past them a version of the Battle of Jutland which some of them might not like, because the first, Lord of the, first sea lord is the same David Beatty who made such an awful botch of the Battle of Jutland. And they will indeed criticise his version of the Battle of Jutland in which Beatty makes a botch of it. Uh, but all subsequent accounts have essentially vindicated Corbett. He was right. Beatty made a terrible fist of fighting the battle. What Corbett is stressing, I think, is two things. One, you cannot win a war by winning a naval battle. Naval battle is a vehicle towards the winning of the war, but as Corbett has stressed in all of his works for the previous 20 years, it's the ability to then follow it up on land uh, that gives you a war-winning capacity. He says, since men live upon the land, it is upon the land in general that all great wars are settled. That doesn't mean that you have to start them there, it just means you have to finish them there. And I would suggest the latter stages of the Second World War might be an appropriate example uh, of how that works. And many of Britain's major wars had worked in the same way. He developed this doctrine from that. For him, Trafalgar sets up a phase of the Napoleonic conflict in which Britain degrades Napoleon's economy, defeats his continental blockade, and more importantly, breaks the economy of Russia, leading the Russians to break with Napoleon. Napoleon didn't invade Russia to conquer it. He invaded Russia to put Russia back in the continental system as part of the blockade of Britain. The Russians couldn't function without trade with Britain. They were becoming bankrupted. And as the Tsar Alexander knew... The previous time Russia had stopped trading with Britain, the nobleman who relied on that income had murdered his father. And not wanting to follow his father to an early grave, he decided it was better to fight Napoleon than to fight the British. So Brit Britain is a very powerful country, it's just not in the obvious ways. So Corbett was putting a version of British strategy back into the narrative because it, the purpose of his book was to make sure that the British recognised that what they'd done <coughs> throughout the First World War was not the proper way of conducting British strategy. Having an army strategy and a navy strategy was catastrophically disastrous. He said Britain absolutely has to command the sea and therefore there are limits on 
the ability it has to mobilize continental military power, and it should recognize that and indeed act upon that basis. And it's not accidental that the Second World War was fought in rather different ways. That was not just because the French didn't carry on for very long, there were other reasons as well. Jutland was then reimagined for other purposes. Beatty, as first sea lord between 1919 and 1927, used his heroic reputation, largely unjustified, to defeat the Treasury in a series of battles about the naval budget. He kept the shipyards open by posing as a hero. Uh, that caused problems with supporters of Jellicoe, who argued that what he said was untrue and that Jellicoe had actually won the battle and Beatty very nearly lost it. Um, and that debate poisoned uh, relations within the service for some long period. But Beatty gave up posing as a hero when he stopped being first sea lord. And in 1936, when Jellicoe died suddenly, Beatty, who was a very sick man at this stage, uh, got off his sick bed against doctor's orders to attend the state funeral to make sure that everybody understood that Jellicoe won the Battle of Jutland and he'd been one of Jellicoe's admirals. Within two weeks, he too was dead. As a result, two of the five new battleships ordered that day were named Jellicoe and Beatty, and the two fountains in Trafalgar Square are in their honour. Coming back to office in September 1939, Churchill thought that these names might cause problems in the Navy and revive old disputes, so he renamed the battleships Anson and Howe, after men who'd been dead long enough for nobody to contest their reputations. There has been, as you know, a library of books about Jutland, far, far, far more books about Jutland than about Trafalgar. Nobody's interested in studying a battle that's quite clearly won by one side and lost by the other. Um, in case you're wondering, the first two books written about Trafalgar uh, were written in Spanish in the 1840s. No book about Trafalgar of any consequence was written in Britain for a hundred years after the battle. Books about Nelson are plenty, but not about the battle. The battle itself was a, was a mystical experience which was not to be dissected. It was a bit like the Turin Shroud. If you looked closely, you'd probably work out it wasn't true, and you wouldn't want to know that. As a result, in 1914, people had forgotten that it wasn't true. They thought it really was true. They thought that Trafalgar had actually won the war and that it had stopped Napoleon invading Britain. And both of those things are untrue. Even in the 1960s, the two great naval historians, Arthur Marder and Captain Stephen Roskilaren, fought a furious battle about who should write the Battle of Jutland, an academic or a former naval officer. Very un unedifying, very undignified. But today, of course, we recall the courage of the men who served there, those who lost their lives, those who also served, those who returned and, and lived to fight another day. Boy Sailor Jack Cornwall, HMS Chester, is the standout figure in the recasting of Jutland as an event in popular history. Jack Cornwall was the repeating <coughs> number. You can see he's got, uh, he's wired up for sound. He's feeding in the information from the gunnery fire control plot onto this single gun mounting so that the gun crew can lay and fire the gun at a target being seen by the spotting top uh, about 50 feet higher up. Unfortunately, as, as is shown here, uh, Chester took a real, a real beating from some German-like cruisers. The gun was knocked out, the rest of the crew were killed, but Jack Cornwall, for reasons we do not know, stood at his post until he too was mortally wounded. Whether he was being heroic, 
showing an example or just absolutely petrified and didn't know what the hell to do really doesn't matter. But he was picked up as the obvious candidate to be the poster boy of the battle. Uh, he'd already been stitched up and buried uh, at Grimsby, as it happens, uh, and so the boy in the portrait is his younger brother. Uh, he was awarded a VC. He was 16. He was not the youngest casualty of the war, but he was probably the Navy's youngest casualty. And he becomes an iconic memento of this event, and the gun at which he is standing is in the Imperial War Museum. Minus its shield, which is unfortunate because the shield is a large part of the problem. This ship had been ordered for a foreign government and it had less effective gun shields than British mountings, particularly uh, there was a gap between the bottom of the shield and the deck, so most of his crewmen had been cut down around the ankles uh, and then killed. The battle, of course, is still news. Uh, still, it was big news then, it's big news today. Only a month ago, the last of the Jutland wrecks was discovered in the North Sea. We now have a complete catalogue of all the ships, and the archaeologists have worked out in greater detail than we knew hitherto how all of them sank. The last wreck, that of HMS Warrior, uh, an armoured cruiser that sank the day after the battle, uh, about 100 miles away from the battlefield while it was being towed back home, not been discovered until recently. Uh, discovered by an ex a Danish expedition which has chartered all of the wrecks, most of which are in Danish territorial waters. Um, you'll all be familiar with the idea of a war grave. If you study the Western Front, there are many war graves, and these are quite sacred sites. At sea, there is no such thing as a war grave. These things are plundered, pillaged, and looted on a regular basis. Uh, things from these ships turn up in scrapyards in Holland all the time. Uh, only a couple of years ago, one of the propellers from the Indefatigable turned up. And we know it's from Indefatigable because it said on the propeller boss, Indefatigable, port outer. So four propellers, port outside propeller. So there are no war graves at sea. Uh, the sea covers many things. And many of the wrecks are now rusting out. So the destroyers, the most lightly built ships, are literally fading into the seabed. Uh, and the cruisers will fade after them. And the heavier armoured ships will, will be the last to go. Uh, but all of them, apart from Warrior, show signs of having been illegally plundered by scrap merchants. So this is now a major resource. Just, of course, as the Battle of Waterloo was a major resource for the British fertiliser industry in the 19th century. Nothing changes. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.